We're continuing in our study of the Gospels in which we are seeing exactly how in the days of Jesus he presented the path of the Masters to his initiates. And we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Last time, which was two weeks ago, that we did this we took up the Lord's Prayer <coughs> and Jesus' teaching on prayer in general. And the first section of today's reading is connected with that. He says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, Anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. This is a, a reiteration for emphasis of, of a basic teaching which we went into a few weeks back. The idea that if we, if we choose to have the applause of other people rather than the thing itself, then we have made our choice and we in fact have our reward. That is, the praise of men. If people see us, if we act in such a way as to make other people think that we are holy, and they see us and, and very dutifully think that, okay, you are holy, then that is in fact all the holiness that we are going to get, is, is whatever is in their minds. Because we have traded the reality for the appearance. And that is what he means when he says that they have their reward. Um, in connection with this, back several weeks ago, I mentioned that Sanchi had said that it is better for people not even to know that we are initiated. From this point of view, it's better. Not necessarily, doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel free to talk about our master or to explain the path to people if they really want to know. That's not the point. But the point is that we should avoid any actions which make people think, well, they're spiritual people or um, they really uh, are holy and like that, because those will rebound. And the prohibition against telling experiences and against teaching others to meditate also um, are applicable here. Then he goes into another section which we will read in its entirety and then take up um, in smaller detail, which is again one of the key sections of this particular sermon, which as we have seen is perhaps better called the Great Instruction rather than the Sermon on the Mount, seeing that it's an intimate instruction to the initiated disciples and not a public sermon. It says, Lay not up to yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If, therefore, thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in thee be darkness, 
How great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. And the words take no thought, you really are misleading in, in when you read them in modern English. What they mean is, don't worry about, don't be anxious about. Um, that it was their meaning when, when the words were translated in the 16th century. Therefore I say unto you, don't worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than food and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit unto his stature? And why worry about raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore don't worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Perhaps better rendered, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow can worry about itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, which in a modern translation, at least one modern translation, is translated... Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, this is a, a key section, as I said, and it begins, the basic theme of it is a question of priorities, and the initiates are called upon to make a very solid commitment as to where we are going to put our attention. That runs through, that is the thing that, that runs through the section. Where we put our attention and where we put our trust and that leads to whose slave will we be? Okay, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Or as you think, so you will become. Masters say, Master Kripal Singh has said in many places, that um, Sanchi has also said in many places, that we cannot take, obviously, any of the things that we accumulate with us. The comments on the Sukmani that are now appearing in the magazine are full of um, references to this, both in Guru Arjun's hymn and also in Sanchi's commentary. Um, we cannot take it with us and what we can take with us and what we must take with us is whatever we have done to get that treasure 
In other words, the quality of our acquisition goes with us even if our acquisition does not. Because what we do, the ways in which we sell ourselves or the where, wherever we have put our attention in order to get what we have gotten, that remains with us no matter what. <coughs> that will go with us to the next world and that also governs the quality of our life in this world. So, this is another way of saying treasures on earth are corruptible. We we think that they are solid and real. We think that they are more solid and real than perhaps uh, spiritual treasures. Some of us, not everyone thinks that, but many people do, including many initiates. We, we say that we don't think it, but in fact we do think it. So we have to put our attention on the real treasure, which is the riches of the soul, as the Masters say, the that which we need in order to make um, our soul strong and that that which we need in order to stand happily and solidly in the inner planes, that which will go with us when we go. And what that is is explained or hinted at, I should say, in the next verse, which is an integral part of this section. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, which is better translated as foggy, by the way, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Now these two verses are perhaps the most misunderstood, or I won't say misunderstood, because they're not understood in the whole Bible as far as um, Orthodox believers are concerned. I've never heard them explained any way even approaching uh, rationally by any uh, Christian Orthodox religious interpreter. Of course, from the point of view of initiates, it's very clear. And even scholars who have done some research into the realities of esoteric Judaism of the day uh, understand the true meaning of this verse incredibly enough. Um, this is the leading biblical scholar of the generation just concluded. I think that he's dead now, but he might be still alive. In any case, he would be an old man. W.F. Albright, in his commentary on Matthew, writes, To lay hold of treasure in heaven, the disciple must have his inner eye healthy. The idea expressed here is that just as the body is illuminated by the eye, as though that organ were a window, so there is a spiritual eye through which the whole spirit of man is either illuminated or in darkness. Now that may seem like absolute. Of course, we, what else can it be? I mean, that's what the Masters say it is, and that's what, um, if we're initiated and we've had some experience of opening our inner eye, and seeing with it, then obviously that's what, um, what else can it be talking about? But you would be amazed to learn how many things, uh, people do say that it is talking about. And for one thing, they, there's a big hang up on this word single, um, which is usually in modern translations not translated as single, although the idea is, uh, of course the use of I in the singular gets the same impression across. Often is translated as clear, sometimes sound, occasionally healthy, 
um, none of which are really wrong, all of which the same point is made in all of them, although the, the use of the word single drives home the point that it is only um, one, that the third eye is one. Anyway, it's because it's the presence of this light that comes through that eye which makes the whole teaching in this in this whole sermon, actually, and in this particular section in particular, possible. Without, without being able to contact the light through the single eye, then the whole rest of the things that Jesus is saying don't become possible. And that is precisely why that verse is here, right in the middle of the instruction, uh, and in a very clear, I would say, way, although it is elliptical, in the sense that there is... Uh, it is not explained very fully, just two small verses. Nonetheless, both the content of the verses and their placement show the tremendous importance that they have. If thine eye be foggy, messed up, closed, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And Master Kripal Singh has explained the very obvious meaning of this verse, that if we have light, if our eye is opened and we do experience the light and then we lose it, we throw it away, um, or even if Master cuts us off for one reason or another from it, then it is much worse as far as we are concerned. It is much worse and much harder than if we had never had it. And therefore the, the, uh, the importance of maintaining the light that we are given and Master Kripal Singh has actually written a great deal on this particular subject, especially in the Crown of Life, um, in chapter 6, which I would recommend to anybody. In the Gospel of Luke, the same verses are put um, in a little different context. As we have seen, Luke has uh, the same instruction that make up this great instruction as in Matthew uh, scattered throughout his um, his gospel, and he has Jesus giving parts of it on the plain rather than on the mount. But that doesn't have to mean much of anything except that Jesus may have said the same things more than once, um, which masters do do. No man, see, the light of the body is the eye, Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy whole body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, this is an extra verse that is not present in Matthew, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light, thus making it I think really clear that he is talking about actual light that is seen, not anything um, metaphorical or symbolic, intellectual light, etc. So, it is it is a central part of the teaching. Now, when we discussed the time many weeks or months ago now, when we discussed the um, teaching of Jesus regarding initiation, drawing on the secret gospel of Mark. At that time we saw how um, the actual, most of the references to the specifically esoteric part of the teaching were 
eliminated from the published versions of the Gospels, the, gospel, the versions that were made available to the public. We can only guess at this point as to how much more clear these writings would be if those additional sections were available to us as one is that has been rediscovered. Um, this, however, is one, and there are others too. Um, in John, of course, we have a much more esoteric writing to begin with, but even in the synoptics, in the first three, um, there are some verses like this that, that have survived and come down to us. There are unmistakable references to the inner practices. <coughs> and without reference to those inner practices, without the knowledge of initiation, it is impossible to make sense out of these verses. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, of course, means wealth, materiality, or the treasures upon earth. All of these ideas are tied together here. Now that phrase, no man can serve two masters, in the original Greek, it really reads, a better rendering of the Greek is, no man can be the slave of two masters. And the sense is very clear, that you are going to be a slave of somebody. We may value our freedom, and that's our inherited privilege, but the fact is that we are either going to be a slave of God, or we are going to be a slave of Maya. And that is uh, our choice. Our choice is one or the other. There really isn't any third choice. And we can't be the slave of both. Now, slavery was an accepted fact of life in those days, and Jesus uses it. Many of the people that he was talking to um, probably had probably became slaves before their life was over because he was dealing with, for the most part, the lowest of the low, people who had a good chance to be put into slavery. So the, the metaphor has a stronger impact, perhaps, than it has on us reading it today. But the, the implication is clear. We have to choose. It's demanded of us to choose. We have to make a commitment. We serve God, we become his slave, or we serve mammon or maya, illusion, materiality, or whatever we want to call it, and we become its slave. The difference is that of the, the gurumuk and the manmuk. The mouthpiece of the guru or the mouthpiece of the mind. And that phrase, mouthpiece of, that is used, which is often offensive to Western ears, implies the same thing, that we are the slave of the guru or the slave of the mind. In neither case do we have any claim to freedom until we get back to the goal from which we originally set out from. When we, through serving the Master, through serving God, we become what He is, then we can say that we are free, although Masters don't even say that they are free. They will say, Master Kripal says, I am bound more than you, because I am bound by the chains of love. So although it's it's freedom in one sense, in another sense, um, we can never be free as long as we are apart. We can only be free through being the whole and experiencing the ownership as well as the ownership, if you follow me. So we have to make the choice. The choice can be made if we are contacting 
the inner light. If the inner light is available to us and we are able to feed on it, then we are in a position to make the choice, but still we have to make it. And not every initiate is a, is a gurumukh. In fact, until we reach the point where Master's wishes actually take an immediate kind of priority for us, most of the time, maybe all of the time, can we even begin to have an understanding of what Guru Mukta means. We may experience it to some extent when we're sitting at his feet, for example, in India or over here, but we cannot, um, we cannot really claim to be a Guru Mukta unless we are living like that all the time. And therefore, it's a question of we might be serving God a few minutes a day. If we're doing Simran, if we're sitting in meditation and remembering Him, if we are not succumbing to something that He has told us to watch out for and we remember Him at those times, then we can say, or it can be said, He may say that we are serving God at those times. But if, if it's not like that, then uh, whose slave are we being? So we cannot serve both at once. And growth and progress, finding ourselves, finding God, all of the things we want, all of the things we have come here to get, are absolutely dependent on our making that commitment and holding on to it. This is a very stark choice that is being set up for us here. And uh, we should not think that, th- that it is not, or that this is a small, a small or easy thing. Therefore I say unto you, and this is the terms, now Jesus is laying down the terms on which this slavery is chosen. Okay, don't worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than food? The word in the King James Version is meat, but as we have seen, that word at this time meant food. And its appropriation, of course, for it to mean flesh was a major victory in the euphemism department, because in the beginning, uh, meat was a very innocuous word. And flesh, it's impossible to forget what you're eating if, if you say that you're eating flesh but not with meat. Is not the life more than food and the body than raiment? And then he gives examples. Behold the fowls of the air, the birds. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? I have never, I am reminded of the story that Sanchi tells of um, Mardana and the hen which we heard here at Satsang a few weeks ago, when Guru Nanak told Mardana that uh, he was eating some corn and he told him that that corn that he was eating was not meant for him, but was meant for a hen in Lahore. And Mardana laughed and said, how is that possible? But as he tried to eat it, uh, one of them, got, he swallowed wrong or something, and one of them got stuck in his nose, and he couldn't get it out. And uh, it stayed there until they reached Lahore, many many hundreds of miles away, at which time they saw a hen walking toward them, pecking for food, and Guru Nanak said that that hen was uh, going to eat that corn. And 
Madonna laughed again and said, but it stuck in my nose, how is that possible? And at that moment he sneezed, and out came the corn and the hen gobbled it up. And parables, or we may say, not parables, but events like that uh, make very clear exactly the extent to which our Heavenly Father feeds them. And the point is, uh, much better than they does not mean that we are of more goodness than the fowls of the air. I don't think anyone watching the behavior of humans versus birds would come to that conclusion, but that we are of more value than they, which of course is true. On the scale of evolution, human beings do stand higher, more is expected of them, and the implication is, since uh, this is true, then would not our Father also take care of us? Now, which of you, by worrying can add one cubit unto his stature. And the sense here, cubit is a is a is is not really a translation of the Greek word. Cubit, of course, is a measurement of space. What is the sense of this verse is which of you by worrying can add anything unto your lifespan? Who can live longer because of worry? In other words, the amount of time that we have is fixed. And uh there is no um, avoiding it and we're going to live that long no matter what we do and there is no way we can alter that and we certainly can't alter it by worrying about it and why worry about raiment consider the lilies of the field how they grow they toil not neither do they spin and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these wherefore if God so clothed the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Such marvelous words. This was one of my favorite verses in all the Bible when I was younger. Therefore take no thought, don't worry at all, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, that is to say, those who don't know God. This was, of course, a strictly Jewish Audience, the word is not really used here in the modern sense of non-Jews, however, but it means um, those who have not made the commitment that you have made. could be translated as non-initiates, which gives the same weight that it has in, in the original. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It's a question of trust, again. And when we talk about faith, what we mean is trust. Uh, saying, I believe in this, I believe in that, that's not a question of faith. That's a question of, of intellectual belief or ism. But it's a matter of trust, of having our, our finger in the finger of the Master, to use Sanchi's analogy, and to let him lead us. I'm going to read in a minute uh, Sanchi's commentary on, on part of this, which it's on the hymn of Kabir, but it's on um, the same subject, which a story is told of Namdev and how, how he lived up to this. And I know a Satsangi who used to get very upset at hearing that story. Master Kripal also told that story about Namdev. And he used to say that these Satsangis are irresponsible enough as it is uh, if, if the master tells them stories like that, how are they ever going to keep jobs and hold them? 
how are they ever going to get to work on time? And like that. This is not, this is not the point. Obviously, if we trust in Him, okay, we will do whatever He tells us. If you love me, keep my commandments. If we know that earning our living is part of what we're supposed to do, we will do that. But how will we do it? That's the point. If we do it as an act of love for Him, as a part of our overall spiritual commitment, and see it as an act of worship, and do each thing that's required in it as an act of love, then we will be following this explicitly. And we not, don't worry if we're going to be fired or not fired, promoted or not promoted, given a raise or, God forbid, given less money. We won't worry about those things because they're in his hand. And uh, we will obviously do our uh, best at any given moment. But we still have to do it. It's part of the... This is one aspect of what I call the great paradox on the path. Okay, the paradox being that from one angle of vision, from one end, everything is fixed. Okay, God is the only doer. Uh, God sees what is happening and it's already ordained that it happened. Our fate is fixed and so forth. From the other end, everything depends on us. We make choices and those choices may be right or wrong. And depending on the choices we make depends our karma. On our karma depends what happens to us in the future, both in this life and the next. And so how do we reconcile those those two things? We can't reconcile them as long as our vision is tied up in the physical plane. Even if we meditate a lot, even if we have inner experiences, still we can't reconcile these two things because... Um, we really have to be seeing from the level of the fourth or fifth plane in order to understand it. There are certain things that we just can't grasp on this plane that make the whole thing come together. It's like if you take, for example, uh, some of the discoveries in modern physics, um, things which I can't even begin to comprehend. There are those here who can. Uh, and try to understand them. If we don't have the, the background and the capacity to do it, we can never do it. But if we if we do, then it's really quite clear to us. And if, even to take a simpler example, if we take and explain to somebody, if we go back a thousand years, say back to um, 981, the year 981, and explain a very simple thing to somebody, if we say to somebody, look here, if, if uh, I stand here and you two people assuming that there's two of them, start walking in opposite directions away from me. And you keep walking, no matter what. You don't have to stop for hunger or anything like that. And you keep walking in the same directions. Uh, you will get further and further away from me and from each other, which they will grasp readily, up to a point. Then you will start getting closer and closer to each other, although you're still getting further away from me. Then you will meet each other and pass, then you will get further and further away from each other, but closer to me, and then you'll eventually be back right here. And what on earth would they say? And yet that's a, that is an absolute exact rendering of what happens once you understand that the world is round. If you don't know the world is round, then it's like absolute witchcraft, or gobbledygook, or both, one or the other. And that's the kind of thing. There are certain, a certain perspective that the masters have 
on the universe, which they cannot. They try to explain it to us. Baba Salan Singh said that from the point of view, he said from the point of view of the physical plane, from this end, it looks like um, everyone is doing this and that, and we are earning and unearning, and we are so forth and so on, and accomplishing and having things done to us and doing things to others and all this. But from such kind, it looks like bubbles rising and falling in an ocean. And at other times he says very clearly that from the point of view of such kind, we can see that the whole thing is fixed. Now, this is the paradox, but the, the paradox, it's because of the paradox that it is a very destructive thing to do certain things as initiates. One is to worry too much about things which are already dealt with in our fate. How much money we're going to have, for example, is one of the six things that we are are born uh, with it already uh, established. doesn't mean that it can't change during the lifetime. Obviously, some people become very wealthy who start out poor, and some people become very poor who start out wealthy. But those things, whatever our financial position is at any given time, is fixed. It's part of our fate karma. And therefore, to worry about it, to do anything about it apart from what the Master tells us to do in love, that is, to earn our own living as best we can, is a tremendous waste of our psychic energy. It's an absolute inappropriate misplacement of attention. And uh, we will always lose by it. Another part, aspect of it, of the great paradox, is that um, to blame other people for what they do. This is, of course, covered in the next section, which proceeds right from this, which we will go into next week. Judge not that ye be not judged, etc. Very strong part of the teaching which the masters that we know have also laid great stress on. The current uh, Ashtapadis of the Sukhman in the magazine are on this subject too. And the point is that if um, people are doing what they are being programmed to do, then how can we find fault with them? In the old statement there, but for the grace of God goes I, is absolutely true. The only difference, from this level, the only difference is a matter of grace. Now, if it is suggested that um, in that case that man is an automaton and has no moral culpability, has no responsibility, and then why should God blame him? All I can say is that this is part of the paradox that as long as we are working within Kyle's world, within the domain of the three worlds, then there is a sense in which we are doing even though there is also a sense in which we are not. This is how Sanchi explains that from Ashtapadi 11 of the Sukhmani. God himself does everything and residing within the people, he makes them work. He is the only one who can do anything. Whatever he wishes, only that happens. When the disciples ask Guru Nanak, when it is said that everything happens, happens in the will of God, and God himself does all the things which happen, then why are the souls blamed that they are doing good or bad? Guru Nanak replied, as long as the souls really understand that it is all God working, they are not blamed. But when they think that it is I who is doing it, and when the sense of egoism comes, then they are held responsible. So it's a question of the 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 um, 
the boundary is the the fact that we cannot see is in itself the cause of what it is that we do see. In other words, you could say something like that. Um, again, a reason why our inner eye should be wide open. The more light that we have, our whole body is full of light, then the clearer these things become. In any case, uh, that is part of the paradox. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It doesn't mean that if we become initiates and uh, we are committed to God that we become wealthy and all that, not the least. It does mean that um, we will still get all of the other things just as much as if we didn't make that choice. Why? Because this is fixed in our fate karma. The amount of things that we are to receive are already there. And our life on this level is a question of working them out. The one thing that is not fixed, the one thing that is never fixed in the within the context of the three worlds and cannot be, is this commitment to find God. That is where we do have freedom, even though there are many statements to the effect that God brings those people to him uh, whom he wants to bring, and that is all a question of grace. And I know that those statements are absolutely true. The fact is that um, uh, from our point of view, this is still not necessarily written into our fate karma. That there are choices, are, perhaps it's not right to say choices, our priest's predilections, our, our, uh, the way in which our attention is drawn is an important or a uh, decisive factor. Anyway, if we make the commitment, the commitment that this whole section has been about, and that is to seek first the kingdom of God, if that commitment is made and is thoroughly there, then it won't alter our fate karma one bit in terms of how much money we're going to get or the quality of our material life. That will remain the same. But um, what it will mean is that we will have all that, whatever we would have had anyway, plus the kingdom of God too. Because that is up to us to, um, to seek for. So, since that is true, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow can worry about itself. This day has enough, each day has enough trouble of its own. Very common sense, aphoristic thing. Um, no, just no point. There is no point in worrying about tomorrow. There is no point in, uh, in uh, projecting ahead. Live in the living present is the way the masters put it. And it's the same, the very same idea. Uh, by doing so we avoid the two non-real sprites Master Kripal Singh used to call them once and in trying in putting a talk of his into the magazine I could not understand the word on the tape and I put it in as spikes and it was not spikes and when I got to India the next time somebody asked him what, what he meant by two spikes who are eating into our vitals and he laughed like anything and he said he didn't mean <laughs> any spikes, it was sprites. I was very chastened, but uh, they definitely, they are sprites because they are illusory. The past and the future have no existence. Only the living present has existence. 
And that's the point. We have enough trouble. It's difficult enough to live in the living present, let alone uh, projecting ourselves constantly into the past and into the future. That uh, works against works against us. In the when Sanchi was here in May seventy-seven, uh, he commented on a hymn of Kabir, which many of these. Uh, points were made and I want to read from that because this is a very singularly appropriate section on this especially on the idea of trust O Kabir why should I worry what will I bring about by worrying God worries about me I have no worries this of course is exactly the same thought as as your heavenly father will feed them and are you of not more value than they etc if you want to accomplish anything in this world, Sanchi says, the first thing required is to have faith, to have belief. When we are traveling in a train, going over rivers or on the bridges built by engineers, we have faith in those engineers that their bridges will not break down. We surrender our precious lives in their hands and travel in the train without any worries. Fearlessly, we sleep all night while the train crosses bridge after bridge. In the same way, when we fly in the air, we go out miles above the earth. We surrender our lives to the pilots and the engineers because we have faith in them that they will take us to the right place and that they are able to take us where we want to go. Similarly, when we enter into Saint Mat, in the beginning we need much faith in the Master. If we have any doubt, we cannot progress and the way to him will not be open to us. We can deceive and misguide the people, but we cannot deceive that God which is within us. We cannot play tricks on him. In the beginning, we need to build up faith outwardly. And after that, when we go within and see with our own eyes, we realize that we need not worry about anything. Because the God who is residing within us is concerned about us, and he is doing everything for us. We read in the history of Bhagat Namdev that he had a very beautiful hut, and his neighbor was very jealous of it and wanted to destroy it. Once it so happened that his neighbor did destroy it. But Bhagat Namdev was not unhappy with him. He sat in meditation and said, I am not worried about this hut. If God wants me to sit in a hut, he will make it for me. And while he was sitting in meditation, his Satguru came and made him a hut, much more beautiful than before, and that had been the best hut in the village. His neighbors asked him, Namdev, who has made this hut? If the same person will come and make our huts, we can pay him more than you have paid. But Namdev replied, he will ask for much more than you can pay. See, what will he ask for? Well, he, he answers the question. What payment does he ask? He tells us to detach ourselves from our family and all our attachments. When we give him this payment, then there is no need to call him. He will come by himself. In other words, the commitment that Jesus was talking about, that is the payment. And it's a great mistake to think that we can take this attitude if we have not achieved this this place, if we have not made that payment, if the commitment has not been made by us, and of course to detach ourselves from our family does not mean to stop caring about them or to abandon them, but it means, again, not to worry about them in this way, as though we are the doers, to do our best, to love them and to live with them, cooperate with them in mutual love and responsibility, but not to forget who it is that is really ultimately responsible. So the commitment has to be made and only those who have 
actually made that commitment and who have reached that place where they can see the results of it uh, can imitate this behavior. To This is why that fellow that I was telling you about before used to get so upset with this particular story because he thought that satsangis everywhere um, would be imitating this behavior and it may be true. Bhagat Namdev was a cloth dyer by profession and he was not working hard at his trade. He was not a good businessman. He would come home and his family would ask him, what are you doing? Why are you not making money? He would say, I don't find any customer to whom I can sell my clothes. Then his mother told him to sell his clothes on credit if nobody was ready to pay cash. So he took his clothes, went outside, gave some of his clothes to the beggars and put the rest on some stones there and came back. His mother asked him, how is business? He replied, yes, I have given all the clothes on credit. His mother asked, when will you get paid for them? He replied, they told me that whenever they have it, they will come here and pay us. Then he sat for meditation. Some people told Namdev's family, nobody is going to come here to pay you. Bhagat Namdev has given his clothes to the beggars and he has put some of them on the stones and they will not give you any money. So God himself came in the form of a man and brought some money. He said, Namdev has given me some clothes. Here is the payment. Bhagat Namdev was sitting there in meditation while his God, his master, came there in the form of a man. But what do we people do? We are worrying for our own self and we are always concerned that if we do not do this thing, we will not be able to get that and this work will not be done. Because we are always thinking for our own self, we are suffering. We do not have faith in that God who has given us birth who has brought us into this world. We sometimes even forget that he is concerned about us and we think that he will not give us food, he will not give us that which we need. But what are saints and Mahatmas do? They don't worry about anything and they leave everything to their Satguru. That's why their Satguru always fulfills their needs. Guru Nanak says, look at God, how he has created the creatures who live in the ocean. There is no market there, no shopping place. But still God is providing them food and whatever they need. Everything is provided there under the water. Sadhus never save money. They accept only what is needed. For the future, God is there. When they ask, he gives. Now Kabir Sahib says that sadhus never collect money in banks because whenever they need it, God or their master himself provides it for them. And I quoted at this point, I remembered a quote from the Dehradun Northern Post back in April 2nd, 1971 and included it as a footnote. The quotation read, His Holiness Sant Kripal Singh, who is celebrating Mankind Day tomorrow at beautifully constructed Manav Kendra on 25 acres of land, told the Post about his further program. The tall and cheerful saint, when asked how many centers he intends to build, gleefully laughed and said, God is my budget, I am going on like wildfire. If they do get some money from the Sangha, they will use that money for the benefit of the satsang. They will set up free kitchen or make any necessary building for the Sangha. In that also, if they need more money for those purposes, God himself comes and gives that money. Because God or the master of that saint is always worried about that saint and whatever he needs, he provides him with that. And he goes on and the, the entire discourse is on the, is on the same subject. But I think that this is an important point that is really very clear. We do have to follow the commandments. We have to, in that sense, be responsible. But um, 
we cannot worry, be anxious, in a sense care about the results of it. That is up to God, that we have to leave to Him. In the sense of trust, if He loves us, then He will give us what is best for us. And in the long run, we may worry about things like when we are going to die or how ill we are going to be. Sickness also is one of the things that is written into our destiny on the day that we are born. And there, if it's in our fate, there is no avoiding it. And death will come when it is, when it is ready to come. And there is nothing that we can do about that either. So it is our way of moving through life should be with our hand firmly in His. We cannot see until our eye is really wide open. We have really reached somewhere. Okay? We cannot see very far ahead. All of us know enough to see as far ahead as the Master is. If our hand is in His, and we keep our eyes fixed on Him, then that is sufficient for us. We can trust Him, and He will lead us. And uh, I think that most of our experience, of most of the people here already, has a lot. We have, we have experienced this for our own selves. We know the truth of this, to some degree or another. At some time or another, we have experienced it. Maybe not always. But the commitment has to be made. We have to seek first the kingdom of God. Our inner eye has to be opened and um, we have to trust. So we'll continue with our study next week. We'll continue our reading from 